welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. She's currently a visiting fellow in the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at Hong Kong University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. This month, we're tackling what's probably the most divisive, the most controversial issue to split the Chinese-speaking world. Forget global geopolitics, human rights, even a looming economic crash. This month, we're talking the big hot pot controversy. For those unfortunates who don't know, Sichuan hot pot is a bowl of simmering oily broth filled to the brim with whole chilies and numbing Sichuan pepper. Diners get their ingredients raw. Slips of raw pork, cubes of icy tofu, slithery goose intestines, bouncy chicken testicles, and dunk them in the boiling broth themselves. It's a rite of passage to eat and to sweat. Yet the man known as the food god, Hong Kong cookbook author Chua Lam, has launched a full frontal assault on hot pot. We'll play you the shocking moment when it happened. You first hear the host asking, if you have the ability to make one dish in the world disappear, what would it be? You can hear the other guests thinking, and then Chua Lam says, I'd like to make hot pot disappear. It's a comment so astonishing it needs special effects. to say it's the cooking style that lacks culture the most. You just throw ingredients in what's tasty about Well, there's no one better to talk hot pot than Fuchsia Dunlop, cookbook author extraordinaire and the first Westerner to study at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. She's also the author of some incredibly good cookbooks, including Sichuan Cookery, also known as The Land of Plenty, Land of Rice and Fish, Every Grain of Rice, and a memoir called Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper. They've been road tested in the Little Red Podcast kitchens, and they come highly recommended. Welcome to the show. Hello. Fuchsia, you've written that hot pot represents the McDonaldization of the Chinese restaurant industry uh, as it encourages de-skilling and dumbing down Chinese food. Does that mean that you agree with Chua Lam? Well, let's say, first of all, that hot pot is great fun. You know, it's a riotous evening full of boiling oil and crazy amounts of chilies and Sichuan pepper. Noisy atmosphere, you and your friends all cook your own food in the broth. So it's fun. But I would slightly agree with him that hot pot does not represent the finest um, culinary skills of the Chinese nation. And that is because um, really all hot pot is, is a broth and you need a good recipe for your broth. And then the guests just cook their own food. So it doesn't require really any cooking skill. It's just up to you how long you cook your food and then you put it in some kind of dip before you eat it. And 
I suppose that um, hot pot has become the food craze all over China and it's now expanding into Chinatowns and into places with Chinese communities all over the world. And I think that's because it's a very easy dish with which restaurateurs can make money because you don't really need skilled chefs. You need someone to concoct a good master broth that hits all the spots of sort of numbing Sichuan pepper, chilli heat, electrifying umami flavours. And then you just need good fresh ingredients. And so in that sense, it's a bit like the craze for burgers in um, Western society. You know, here's something which, you know, it's tasty, it's delicious. Everyone loves it. But all you need in terms of chefs is, is people who can flip a burger on a grill and, um, you know, put the trimmings in a bun. So it means that you don't have to invest in training wok chefs who require extraordinary skills. You know, it's very difficult stir frying. You just need a sort of central kitchen to make your master broth, or you can just buy it in. And then all, all the only skills you need is for people to slice up bits of raw meat and vegetables. I think one thing that particularly offended people was the, the suggestion uh, that Trilam made that there was no culture behind it. And there's a lot of contestation about the history of hot pot. Um, some say it originates from Mongolian warriors in the Jin dynasty who used their helmets as vessels to simmer the broth while they used their shields to flame grill their meat. Um, but even Chongqing uh, and Anhui also claim to have invented hot pot. Fisher, do we know authoritatively where hot pot comes from? Well, um, the earliest sort of written reference to it is in a cookbook written during the Song Dynasty by a hermit poet called Lin Hong, who um, describes people trapping and chopping a rabbit and then skewering the pieces and um, cooking them in a central pot, you know, among the guests. So that's sort of, um, you know, around the 12th, 13th century, we have this reference to hot pot um, as a method of cooking. But of course, there are so many different kinds of hot pot. And that's where all the controversy arises, because um, when people talk about Mongolians, what they're re referring to is Xuanyang Rou, which is scalded mutton hot pot, which is a famous Beijing dish in which people um, dip bits of finely chopped, uh, finely sliced sheep meat into um, basically a copper hot pot full of water, and then they dip it into sesame paste mixed with ch um, chive flour sauce and so on before eating it. Um, but the most famous hot pot is the Sichuanese hot pot, the Sichuanese mala huoguo, maodu huoguo, which means ox tripe hot pot. And that's supposed to be a relatively recent invention. So it was originally a labourer's dish on the riverbanks at Chongqing, the great Yangtze River port. And there, um, poor workers would buy bits of offal and then boil them up by the riverbanks in a pot full of chilies. And um, this dish is only supposed to have become a restaurant dish in the early 20th century, when restaurateurs started bringing the pots indoors and having special tables with um, circles cut out in the middle for the hot pot. Um, so I think that's the confusion that the Hot pot is a cooking method that you find all over China, particularly in the winter when people needed to, you know, sit around a boiling pot to keep themselves warm. Um, but there are all these different regional variations which can sort of, um, you know, compete with each other for, for history. And I mean, what about your hot pot experiences? It's, uh, you must have eaten hot pot hundreds of times. To, do you have a kind of personal favourite? 
Well, I have to say that the first time I had hot pot was one of the worst and most confusing Chinese culinary experiences ever. And this was in 1992, and it was on my first trip to China. And I went to Chongqing, which is the home um, and the place where the home of, of Sichuan hot pot and it was where it originated. And um, I read in my guidebook that um, there was a place called Hot Pot Street. And so I trudged along there and um, I just remember being given this you know somebody set up a pot full of chilies on the table and brought me all these rubbery pieces of food that I could not identify I mean I did not know if they were meat if they were vegetable what they were um, in fact I think some of them were awful and some of them were, were tofu products that I hadn't seen before so without really knowing what to do I dipped um, you know I used my chopsticks to dip these unidentifiable objects into the broth and every single piece came up covered in chilies and this appalling spice that numbed my mouth which again I didn't know what it was at the time and it was Sichuan pepper which if you don't know what to expect is quite shocking the first time and it was just a deeply confusing and unsatisfying meal but then later <laughs> when I went to live in Chengdu um, in the mid-1990s where hot pot was already very popular um, it was a, a sort of frequent social occasion to go out with Chinese friends and eat hot pot. So I would say I'm used to it. And, and one thing certainly is that in Sichuan with the hot pot, um, you can get dozens, if not hundreds of different ingredients to dip into your hot pot to cook. But the most popular in Sichuan are the kinds of offal that are not very widely eaten in the West. So things like, you know, ox tripe, cow tripe, which is, you know, gives its name to the original ox tripe hot pot of Chongqing. So you get these sort of pimply rubbery sheets of tripe, which are quite chewy. And then in Sichuan, even more esoteric, esoteric kinds of offal. So like goose intestines. So you get these um, sort of pale pink glistening strands of intestine and you dip them into the broth very briefly and then they curl up and then you dip them in your dip which in Sichuan is sesame oil and chopped garlic and salt and maybe MSG and then you eat it and then also you know if you want to go even further you can have chicken testicles which are very sort of custody in texture and very savoury. And even, you know, ox penis cut into frilly little morsels. Um, and I should say different kinds of tripe. And also um, pig and cow aorta, which is another of these very rubbery foods. And I have to say that, um, you know, as a typical Westerner, when I first went to China, I found these ingredients absolutely baffling. I mean, I just couldn't understand why anyone would want to eat things that just seem to me rubbery and bristly without any flavour. But of course, that's because in China, there is a, a, a sort of very developed appreciation of the texture of food, the kogan, the mouthfeel. And so over the years of just constant exposure, you know, I grew to enjoy the sensations in my mouth of different foods in a way that I hadn't before. And so now one of the things I really love eating with Sichuan hot pot is goose intestines, because there is this delightful texture. It's sort of slippery and crisp and sprightly 
directly in your mouth. But I would say that it's an acquired taste for most Westerners, like for me. And it's lucky you're on radio so you can't see my face because I am definitely a fan of what you call entry-level dipping. <laughs> I had a Scottish upbringing, so offal wasn't strange to me at all. But, um, but I guess with wealth, a lot of these dishes like black pudding, white pudding, um, tripe, they kind of disappeared off the table. Uh, do you see any sign of that happening in China as people get wealthier, that they um, uh, maybe turn their backs on the more traditional types of offal? Well, um, I, I, I think perhaps, you know, you see children and young people, um, you know, getting interested in Western fast food where you have sort of burgers and, you know, chicken fillets and things like that. But having said that in Sichuan, um, you know, offal is extremely popular and it is very regional because the Sichuanese have a particular penchant for eating really esoteric bits of offal. Like, I mean, the, the most extraordinary um, I ever had, I only had a few years ago for the first time, and that is the upper pallets of pigs which they call Tiantang, paradise. And these are the ultimate in really seriously chewy, graunchy, crunchy offal. Sorry, what is it? The upper what? The upper pallets of pig, the, up, the roof oh. of the mouth, which is oh. really like quite hard to chew. But that's, you know, something that people eat in Sichuan because people get kicks out of different sort of texture. So I think it's a sort of mixed picture. So you do get the sort of more simplified Western fast food becoming popular with young people. But at the same time, China has a very vibrant uh, kind of obsessive food culture where I think people just chase after new and interesting sensations. And so having um, different textures is something that plays to that. And that's one thing that I think, it, Graham, what you said is true, that in any traditional agrarian society, people can't afford to waste meat. And so they make great use of every part from, from nose to tail of the beast that they kill. But I don't think in other cultures you have this same exquisite pleasure in texture for itself. And I think that's why the Chinese go that bit further in eating um, parts of animals that Westerners wouldn't bother with because they seem very fiddly or very grisly. Um, and that's just a very interesting, one of the most interesting sort of distinctive characteristics of Chinese cuisine. Fisher, you, you, you're talking about people getting their kicks. Um, and I, I heard that you once had opiate laced hot pot. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, this is in the in the mid 1990s in Chengdu, and a couple of friends invited me out. We went to a, a town nearby um, to have lunch with some of their friends, and they'd set up a hot pot on the kitchen floor, and we all sat around on little stools, and we, in the usual manner, we cooked our food in the hot pot and had a great time. And then after lunch everyone sort of felt very relaxed and drowsy and sort of sleepy. And we ended up all going and sort of lying down on sofas and beds and sleeping. And I remember having this blissful afternoon siesta. And then when I woke up, I noticed that there were poppy heads bobbing around in the broth. <laughs> and um, poppy heads are a traditional Chinese medicine. And um, they used to be found in spice mixes that you could buy in markets. And people would sometimes put them in the hot pot. And they do have a mild narcotic effect. <laughs> so that was my, ex my, my experience of it. 
I have to say, it sounds quite pleasant. I mean, you were talking about new and exciting innovations. And over the last few days, we were exposed to the latest hot pot craze uh, through the Twitter stream of the Reuters reporter, Lee Pei. I don't know whether you saw it, but he tweeted about going to the have bubble tea hot pot. Did you see this? Oh, I did. So <laughs> one side of the hot pot was chilli and the other side was bubble tea. And apparently you could even get durian bubble tea. Really? <laughs> Jelly and pearls floating around with it. So you could drink your bubble tea while eating hot pot and then like swish your hot pot meat around in durian oh. bubble tea. I mean, <laughs> what do you make of that? Is that innovation or is it a blight on hot pots well it doesn't sound very appetizing to me but i mean i think the thing is that hot pot is so popular and as already mentioned it's a relatively easy way to open a restaurant and so there is feverish competition and so you get you know hot pot restaurants want to have a sort of spin on um on the concept to attract customers. So you get hot pot restaurants with interesting decor, you get hot pot restaurants that specialize, for example, in fresh goose intestines. On my last trip to Chengdu, I went for a Tibetan vegetarian hot pot where the broths had um, you know, medicinal herbs and where all the shrimps and belly pork and so on was sort of vegetarian food made from tofu and from konyaku yam and other vegetarian ingredients. Wow. The king of hot pot chains, um, Heidi Lau, which offers you free manicures while you're waiting and you have this incredible home delivery service where you can even pick your own waiter. Uh, it, it raised a billion dollars with its IPO and its shares are still doing pretty well. But do you think diners outside of China are crazy for hot pot? Well, um, certainly it's had a rocky start in London where I'm based. But there was a, a Thai Chinese restauranter who opened a hot pot restaurant in central London called Shuang Shuang. Um, and the idea was to try to um, bring it to the attention of Westerners and get it outside the Chinese community. So it was a very beautifully done up restaurant um, with individual hot pots. So each diner would choose their own um, soup base from a, a menu of choices. And then they had a conveyor belt with all the ingredients sailing through it like sushi on those sushi conveyor belt restaurants. And so it was all very well designed and thought out. Um, but they also gave people, um, you had a sort of piece of paper with a diagram and with instructions on what to do, you know, how to mi mix your dip and um, how to cook the foods and the different, I think they even maybe had some sort of timer for timing the different foods. And the problem with this was that it all sounded terribly complicated. And so, um, you know, a couple of the most famous London restaurant critics um, said that, you know, variously it was like doing an exam at school and um, that it was like trying to assemble IKEA flat pack furniture. <laughs> Very complicated. So... So this place, I mean, you know, it's it's still going, I think, and it, you know, seems to be popular, but it, it hasn't taken off, I would say, in a way that suggests that hot pot will be a big craze for Westerners. And I was wondering what kind of food trends we've seen recently. I mean, it seems that under Xi Jinping, there's been this move towards kind of gastronomic self-restraint, you know, this whole idea of uh, four dishes and one soup 
uh, being the culinary watchword and cutting back on banquets. I suppose that could be good for hot pot because it's a way of dining well without dining ostentatiously. But I mean, in, in your recent trips around China, what what kind of trends have you seen? Well, I would certainly say that um, you know the anti-corruption campaign um, has made it really impossible and very risky for any kind of official to be seen to be ostentatiously dining out. I think the the whole culture of sort of private rooms and luxurious delicacies um, is extremely frowned on, but it's just gone underground. So um, you do get restaurants where, you know, very discreet restaurants where people who want to go and spend a lot of money on expensive delicacies can do so in privacy. You know, sometimes I've heard even with their own lifts, their own elevators to take people up, not through the main entrance of hotels and so on. But I suppose that um, the sort of public face of official dining has completely changed and there is an attempt to show frugality and um, not this elitist dining. But I mean, it hasn't gone away. I mean, I I do know that a lot of high-end restaurants have been hit very hard by the anti-corruption campaign and many have closed down because there's been a big dent in luxurious dining. But it's still there because, you know, everyone cares about food and if you can afford to eat amazing food, then you will. But I suppose in the the WeChat generation, you get uh, crazes for particular kinds of street food. And so you get very small, you know, businesses, just like one street vendor or tiny restaurant, completely overwhelmed with customers. So for example, you know, walking around the streets of Chengdu recently, I saw an enormous queue um, just on a residential street. And it was someone selling tangyo guozi, which are these lovely um, glutinous rice balls covered in toffee and sesame seeds, fried in oil, mixed with sugar. And um, there were just queues of young people waiting for ages for this very humble street snack. And that's a sort of, you know, that's the social media age. And I would say also that, you know, when I first lived in Chengdu in the 1990s, there were a lot of um, laid off workers who were making a bit of extra money by selling street snacks. So there was a sort of revival of the old culture of street snacks. And you would go around and see some bloke on a bicycle with a steamer on the back selling yerba, these wonderful glutinous rice dumplings wrapped in tangerine leaves and stuffed with um, minced pork, stir-fried with yatai, this um, famous um, sweet salty pickle from Yibin in, in southern Yibin in southern Sichuan. Um, and then there's, you know, with the sort of um, modernization of, of Chengdu and of other Chinese cities, um, local officials have often tried to clean up the streets. And part of this has been to get rid of unregistered street vendors. And so what you now have is sometimes rather corporatized street food. So there are special areas in Chengdu which are devoted to street food, that the sort of decoration of the stalls is uniform and people get their pitch. But it's not the old culture of individual street traders doing their own thing. You know, the the people cooking there are often employees of a business doing street food. And so the quality is not always so high. And also it doesn't always feel so local. It's like a kind of Chinese fast food in a way on the streets. So um, that has changed a lot. I do remember 
once you were talking about or writing about how you'd taken a whole bunch of Chinese chefs on this food tour of the US and that you'd taken them to some of the best eateries and they'd been just sort of completely baffled by Western food. And I do remember it specifically because I remember that one of them was Yu Bo and I went to his restaurant and ate frog ovaries, which just totally baffled me um, as, a, as a food stuff. I mean, why, why is it, do you think, that there's this disconnect that is, it was so hard for them to sort of appreciate Western cooking? Well, I mean, that was one of the most fascinating experiences of my life, really. So to be able to accompany three outstanding Sichuan chefs to have their first experience, really, of Western food, because, you know, they hadn't been to, to the West before. They would had almost no opportunity to try Western food, because at that time... There were a couple of smart hotels in Chengdu which did Western food, but there wasn't really any Western food on the Chengdu food scene. And so I went with them completely fresh and um, gave them their first cheese, their first olives, their first all kinds of Western food. And so I just got their unadulterated first impressions. Of course, as you know, Chinese people, they were very uninterested in dairy products and they found the sort of cheese and cream rather unappetizing. Um, they were also quite disturbed by rare meat because, you know, in China there is this idea that, you know, eating raw meat is quite a barbarian thing to do and that, um, you know, it's a little bit dangerous. So they were a bit unsettled by that and then also there were there were things about the structure of the meal so you know we had a tasting menu which was you know extended over about four hours and started quite late at night because that was when I got the reservation I think it was 9 30 which was extremely late for Chinese standards because people there normally eat about 6 6 30 um, and so the whole thing was a culture shock to them. This meal, by the way, was at the French Laundry, which at the time was regarded as about the best restaurant in North America. And I think for me, what was really interesting was that um, there, there has always been this stereotype in the West of the Chinese eating weird and incomprehensible things. And um, this stereotype you just find in discussions of Chinese food really since Westerners have come into contact with it. And um, and it was just a sort of salutary salutary reminder that actually it works both ways. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, that was a particular moment. I mean, yeah, so it, it showed me very forcefully that, you know, what is weird is really just a matter of where you're standing and there's nothing absolute about it. Um, look, I'm, I'm really feeling your pain there because I still recall um, in Anhui when I cooked things for my friends, I, I had this tomato-based sauce I cooked up for three hours and expectantly uh, served it up. And just the, the look of disgust from all my friends around the table, like, why you spent three hours to make this? You know, what, what are you doing? Um, but, I mean, one thing I'm curious about is the top chefs have this almost guru-like aura and manner. Um, they're fated by wealthy patrons. They hold or supposedly hold these secrets of esoteric recipes. They disappear off into the wilderness for years at a time to learn new skills. Um, an example from a few years back was this Sichuanese chef, Peter Chang, who won national cooking contests in China only to pop up in a strip mall in Fairfax, Virginia, uh, and to be hunted down by you know food critics in the States. Why this gurudom? And have you come across any masters worthy of the name? Well, I think, 
I mean, one thing that's worth pointing out about Chinese food culture is that actually, um, although Chinese people have been obsessed with food for hundreds, if not thousands of years, you know, it is a very foodie culture. Often the people who've got the credit for this have not been the chefs, but actually the gourmets and the restaurant owners and the gentlemen of letters who wrote about food. So, for example, the great Qing dynasty gourmet Yuan Mei, he, you know, who wrote the famous cookbook, Recipes from the Garden of Contentment, that he was, you know, his name lives on, but he actually had private chefs in one in particular who people don't really know about. And, And it was his chefs who were doing the actual work in the kitchen, but he was guiding them and steering them and commenting. So actually... I would say that Chinese chefs are often more anonymous than they are in the West. So you have famous restaurateurs and famous restaurants, but the people in the kitchens are more anonymous and they come and go. And that's one of the mysterious things about them, that sometimes you can go to a restaurant that was very good and it isn't anymore, and maybe that's just because the chef has gone. But there are there are some chefs in Chinese history who are famed as being great artists, and there are some chefs in contemporary China. The most famous celebrity chef is Dadong, the um, of roast duck fame, and also of braised sea cucumber fame. <laughs> and um, he's a sort of celebrity chef in the Western mold. He's a very imposing man, hugely tall, very confident, um, brilliantly imaginative chef, and he he that's a name that is quite well known in China, certainly in culinary circles. Um, in Chengdu, there are two chefs who, one of them is Yubo, who Louisa mentioned, and the other is Lan Guijun, um, both of whom are sort of individual artists with their own vision, who are obsessively interested in cooking and in food, um, and who have small-scale restaurants with a kind of personal stamp. Um, But it is quite rare for chefs to have that kind of standing in Chinese society, which is something that always surprises me because I wish people would respect chefs more. But I think in China also there's been a traditional snobbery around literacy. People very much respect culture and literacy. And traditionally, chefs were illiterate. They were not educated. It was the the people who wrote about food who were most esteemed and the people who were actually getting their hands dirty in the kitchen who were not. And I think this is something that should really change because, of course, food is culture and the skills that you find in Chinese kitchens are quite extraordinary. It's a bit like your martial arts... (laughs) and um, they deserve a a kind of credit for their skill and their culture which is not a sort of literary culture but it's culture just the same and for a final question just to go back to the beginning I wanted to ask you the very same question that started this controversy if you had the ability to make one dish from somewhere in the world disappear what would it be? (laughs) Goodness me. Um, you'll have to give me a minute to think about that. I'm so curious. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. S- sorry, to, sorry to do this to you. No, it's, it's really interesting. I suppose I would have to go for a real cliched Chinese dish. So maybe in England that would have to be sweet and sour pork. And it's not that it's a bad dish. It can be really delicious, but it's just... Um, sort of symbolises the reductive way in which the Western world has thought about Chinese food. So I think if we get rid of that and maybe General Tso's chicken, which is also delicious, <laughs> but, 
beef with broccoli, all these dishes which people think are Chinese food and which perhaps get in the way of true understanding and appreciation of this rather amazing cuisine. Well, the, his- the history of General Tso's chicken is, is fascinating. You've written about that too. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm not saying... I mean, I think that, you know, I think a lot of these um, westernised Chinese dishes can be very delicious. And General Tso's chicken was originally concocted by a famous chef from Hunan who was exiled to Taiwan at the end of the Civil War and later went and opened a restaurant in New York, Peng Changgui. Um, so it has a very legitimate um, origin um, and when it's done well, it can be a great dish, but it's just, it's not, um, firstly, it's not a dish from China. It's not a dish that was actually ever popular in Hunan province itself, which is where it's supposed to have come from. But also, like sweet and sour pork in Britain, it's just become the dish that everyone loves, but everyone thinks is Chinese cuisine. And it's just not very representative Louisa, do you want to nominate your I uh, think you can guess you... mine. Mine would definitely be sea cucumbers, the worst dish ever. Oh, I love sea cucumbers. I definitely wouldn't make them to spear. Have you ever had the famous, um, in Beijing, the famous dadong um, um, sea cucumber braised with um, Beijing leek? Tong shao hai shen. No, I haven't. It doesn't sound as if you'd like to, but I think that's a marvellous thing. <laughs> When I go back to Dajog, I will try. Graham, what about you? I'm curious if you, is there any way you can help Louisa with this? I mean, is there some way she can come to love the sea cucumber? Yeah, I think we should have dinner together at Dadong and I will feed you sea cucumbers and um, and whisper poetry about them in your ear and then maybe you'll come to love them too. Well, I do remember the last time we ate together, we did have three-week-old Anhui fermented fish, which was quite oh, an yes. experience. <laughs> it was terrifying but quite delicious. Uh, as you know, I eat pretty much anything by now. So, Graham, what about you? What's your nomination for Disappearing Dish? Look, my, mine's obscure and, and very specific to my experience in uh, in Anhui. Um, when I first arrived there to do field work, I, I was staying in the best hotel in the county because that's where they put you up. And the only light thing on the hotel menu was fruit salad. I thought, that's wonderful. And the first night it arrives covered in mayonnaise. And I'm kind of, all right, look, you know, you do that once, that's fine. Next time I'll I'll tell you to leave it off. And for an entire month, they would agree on the phone, yes, yes, leave off the mayonnaise. And they seemed to delight in just putting more and more mayonnaise onto the fruit salad every night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, Fisher Dunlop, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been fun. And this month, we'd like to hear from you. Which Chinese dish would you like to see disappear altogether? Take a picture of your most hated dish and tweet us or post it to our Facebook page. The top three pictures will win a Little Red Podcast mug. As always, you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and please vote for us in the Australian Podcast Awards. Our editor is Andy Hazel, background research is by Julia Bergen, music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now. <laughs>